Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Joan is going in eighth grade. I mean, do you even remember eighth grade in terms of what, what you uh, learned? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> first day of eighth grade, uh, you know, we felt like we were the big shots of the school, this public high school in Hyde Park. Mm-hmm. And we have a new teacher that walks into the classroom on the very first day. His name is Mr. Leon. I'll never forget him. <laughs> That's a and great he walks name. And he walks into the classroom by slamming the door as hard as he can behind him. Mm. And, and pulling off this like blackboard jungle bullshit where he starts screaming at us. <laughs> Wait, is he this black is like Sidney Poitier in that movie? No, he's, he's a white guy. <laughs> oh, so and, it's inverse. And, and, you know, and the class is you know, very multiracial. Mm-hmm. And the first thing out of his mouth is, hey, kiddos, I'm not a racist. I hate everybody. <laughs> That's nuts. <laughs> That's his greeting to us. <laughs> that, that was our multiracial education. I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. And I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. As in, I'm not a racist. Some of my best friends are. Dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot. In this show, we wrestle with the challenges. And the absurdities. Of a deeply divided and unequal country. And on today's episode... We're going to look closely at how the teaching of American history, specifically the history of race and racism, helps explain the actual country we live in. You know, as you say at the start of every episode, I'm the historian. So uh, you're the perfect partner for this. That's right. That Yeah. Well, um, occasionally my expertise will matter in this conversation. How about that? <laughs> All right. All right. 101. Let's start class. The bell is ringing.
Here we are at the start of another school year. And along with uh, our kids going back to classes and all our anxiety and uncertainty about the coronavirus, there's also this assault on what can be taught in classrooms. Now to schools and a flashpoint issue, how to teach and discuss race in America's classrooms. Tonight, we look at our children's history lessons and the curricula at the center of controversy. Yeah, I mean, it's an it's an incredible moment because after everything that's happened over the past 18 months, you know, there's this great opportunity to finally, you know, reckon with our past and socialize a whole generation of kids about like what our country is and what it can be. And yet in in so many states, at least 12 states have actually banned the teaching of race and racism. And at least another 17 are trying to pass legislation. It's crazy. So these these legislative acts have centered as their primary target a more expansive understanding of how racism has evolved in America. And the justification for this uh, in these laws, I've I've looked at several of them, and in in the case of Iowa in particular, says these are, quote-unquote, divisive concepts. And because they're divisive concepts and because they uh, traffic in what they say is race stereotyping, then at the end of the day, they're basically saying, if people feel uncomfortable with you talking about any kind of racism— um, or it implies that white people have done things to black people that feels like a stereotype, it's out of bounds. And it has created yeah. a situation where teachers uh, have been targeted by administration, by school boards, in such a way that it's a creating a chilling effect in the classroom. Yeah, so you said 12 states have passed laws restricting the teaching of racism. Mm-hmm. 29 states in total are at least considering similar bans. That's crazy. <laughs> no, right? You, you mentioned the Iowa one. But I saw that in Florida, the state school board voted unanimously to ban the teaching of the 1619 Project and critical race theory. Mm. Uh, in Alabama, the school superintendent uh, proposed a resolution where you can't teach concepts that, quote, oppress others. Yep. And one part of that resolution, they say the United States is not inherently racist. And also the state of Alabama is not inherently racist. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Oklahoma, you can't teach the myth of meritocracy. Uh, you know, Texas, you can't teach political activism. There's an yeah. Arizona law that you quote, you can't teach any form of blame or judgment on the basis of race, ethnicity or sex. Conservatives are arguing now that if you teach about racism, then in fact, you are the racist. I know it's crazy. So let's talk about why this was so controversial, the 1619 Project, and why there was such a backlash against it, and why it made people so uncomfortable. Let's talk first about the 1619 Project. Yeah, that's exactly where we need to start, because it's it's because of its publication two years ago that this current round of attacks, you know, first got got started. It was fuel for that fire. Yeah, yeah. This is really where the story we're telling today begins. So I know a lot of listeners will uh, have read the 1619 Project, but for those who haven't, I mean, this was an incredible uh, project born out of the imagination of Nicole Hannah-Jones. 
So I've been thinking about the year 1619 since I was in high school, yeah. and I came across that date in a book called uh, Before the Mayflower. And I just was struck by how uh, people of African descent had been here that long, and I never knew that date and never heard about it. Right. So as the anniversary was approaching uh, the 400th year, I thought that this was a time to actually assess uh, what has that legacy been, and to bring this year, 1619, to most American households where it was probably going to pass without them knowing. She's an investigative journalist and uh, senior writer for the New York Times Magazine. Yep, yep. Uh, she she wanted to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the you know sort of official arrival of of 20 or 30 enslaved Africans uh, to Jamestown, Virginia, in and 1619. She, in 1619, right? So this this project was published in, in August of of 2019, and she assembled this uh, incredible uh, group of, of journalists oh, and historians. Incre- incredible group of historians, <laughs> because you were one of those historians. I mean, really, they were incredible, right? <laughs> I did write uh, an essay on sugar, uh, the long history of sugar as the basis for European uh, conquest uh, and settler colonialism. That is, you know, Europeans coming here and staying, uh, particularly in North America. Yeah. So, you know, everything in this effort to center uh, the presence of Black people as an indispensable part of the American story, uh, that basically you can't understand uh, the country today without understanding all these connections that go back to the very beginning. So this was published first in the New York Times magazine. It filled up an entire issue. Yes, that's right. So the the magazine uh, for this issue dedicated the entire magazine, which is unusual. So there were several essays on history. Uh, There were creative writing, Uh, there was graphics, and uh, the magazine itself became a a kind of cultural touchstone for a broader conversation tied to Black Lives Matter, uh, tied to racial reckonings, and uh, there were lines around the building when the magazine was selling the print edition, aside from what people got in their Sunday newspaper. You know, I know you're downplaying your role in it, but I'm I'm really proud of you. I mean, you're you're a major contributor for this, and this is now in book form, and you're in a bestseller. <laughs> well, you're like I James Patterson. <laughs> well, that, I'm not sure I can take credit for that, but but I, but I can say that uh, Nicole's work, the editor's work, did win a Pulitzer Prize, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, it's a and really that's big deal. that's a certainly a really big deal, and. Yeah. Uh, and what a visionary she is for this. I mean, to really, to really sort of demand of us to to take a different historical look on the country, and to to think about our origin stories and our beginnings, and then, as you said, forcing us to see everything that comes after it through a different lens. Yeah, that's right. So, of course, when I saw Nicole's call for. Um, for people like me to contribute, uh, I jumped at it, and I'm 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 happy, you know, continue to be proud of this work, and you know, with the book coming out soon uh, this fall, it's uh, it's incredible, and we'll see <laughs> we'll see um, not only people responding positively to it, but we'll also see you know more backlash against the significance of this work. So in September 2020, Donald Trump tweets, of course. And what a great thing not to say that anymore. Like, did you see Donald Trump's tweets? But, <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Uh, Trump responds to a tweet about uh, California teaching the 1619 Project in its schools. And he says that the Department of Education will look into it and it will defund the state if he, if he finds evidence of that. 
Um, yeah, of course he has no he has no authority whatsoever. E- to do exactly that. right. States control education. So what he does is he goes on to issue an executive order that bans diversity training in federal agencies and also in companies that do business with the federal government. So he doesn't mean just diversity and inclusion training. He actually says something that isn't true. He says you can't talk about America as irredeemably racist and sexist. Hmm. But nobody who does diversity training talks about America as irredeemably racist and sexist. They might talk about the problem of racism and sexism, but this irredeemable aspect, this notion that there's nothing we can do about it, is the boogeyman in the conversation. And that's the thing that gets people so riled up. And that's why he's had such support for this, had such support, and now it's continuing. And we finally nail Trump and we catch him on saying something that isn't true. This, <laughs> this is the journalistic moment on some of my best friends are. We did it. <laughs> Good work. But no, but it's such a subtle thing because if you keep saying that something that's not happening, then reasonable people can be upset about it. Yeah, yeah. And that's why this thing has, is metastasizing. Yeah, so, so from, then you know, he takes Trump. it further, of course. At the start of the school year last year, so in September 2020, the Trump administration announces that they're going to form something called the 1776 Commission, a patriotic education commission. It's a direct response to the 1619 Project. And, and Trump goes on to say, he says, quote, they're a crusade against American history, which is what we're talking about today. And he says, instead, what, what the country must focus on, what classrooms must focus on is, quote, the legacy of 1776. So forget about that, that 1619. Let's go back to this, this declaration. Right, let's go back to everything moment. that every school child has already learned about the, the, the basic story of the American Revolution. Yeah. There's a larger sort of an ahistorical attack going on that's sort of wrapped up in this idea of critical race theory. And there's a a, a sort of furor at the start of the the school year that we're, you know, who's teaching this? We talked about this at the top of the episode. But that's really part of what's going on here, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we we owe it to our listeners to to actually define what critical race theory is. Let's Uh, go. Yeah, let's do it. So so first of all, Mm -hmm. um, it is strictly speaking a legal theory uh, and historical approach that began in the 1980s, led by, uh, at the time, a Harvard law professor, an African-American man named Derek Bell, and also by a uh, African-American legal scholar, Kimberly Crenshaw. And the basic approach to critical race theory then and now was to literally understand the legal history of racism, which means ultimately critical race theory was very, very much interested in the limits of the law to wrestle with the problem of racism, going back to the beginning, all the way up to the present, even including affirmative action and anti-discrimination law. And why is this important? This is important because what critical race theory as a legal concept uh, did and is still relevant is we still have limitations in our law with respect to dealing with the consequences of structural racism. The fact that any company might actually choose, let's just say, a preferential approach, even a reparative or reparations approach to redress its own history of discrimination is actually illegal in our law. And critical race theorists wanted to point that out because they wanted to say, we have very limited tools legally to deal with this massive structure of racism and inequality. And that's it. That's what critical race theory is. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, this is a pretty obscure academic uh, take and discipline 
looking at structural racism. It's right. not, listen, it's not something, you're a historian of, of this. It's not, it's not a term that I was especially familiar with before the right started throwing it in my face and saying it's everywhere. That's right. That's right. So it, yeah. so it has become a catch-all for absolutely any discussion of race or racism anywhere from kindergarten to an old folks nursing home where someone might show up <laughs> to talk about yeah. um, the disproportionate deaths of COVID if impacting black and brown residents of nursing homes as my uncle Javan, who was 80, died in one in Chicago. Like that's so, how ridiculous the notion that critical race theory is everywhere and is infecting everybody and is a poisonous, toxic um, ideology unleashed on the innocent American public. When we come back, we're going to talk about how historian Khalil Gibran Muhammad got swept up in these attacks and how we should be teaching history. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. 
You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. All right, Khalil. Mm -hmm. So... You've been busy teaching outside of the classroom as well. And really, you know, I'm thinking about after the murder of George Floyd, there was this surge of interest in how racism has persisted in the country and what we should do about it. You know, there, that, that video that was spread around of the police officer in Minneapolis kneeling on the neck of George Floyd was sort of an undeniable depiction of injustice and the two-tier society in America. Mm-hmm. And so after that, there were like, you know, books like How to Be an Anti-Racist by our fellow Pushkin podcaster, Ibram Kendi, and White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. They were flying off the shelves. And, and businesses and corporations were also like, well, we need to do something. And some of them made statements. Uh, you know, they put up banners. But they also invited in some scholars and others to to instruct them about about racism in the country. That's right. That's where you come in, my friend. You went into some of these corporations and I wanted to ask you, like, can you tell us what actually did you talk about? So the the basic ask was help our employees understand what is systemic racism? Okay. What is the history of it? And that covers everything in the most simple definition from the history of colonization, the conquest of indigenous people, to the enslavement of people of African descent, to the period after slavery of formal segregation in Jim Crow, to a history of redlining, to a history of education segregation, to a history of financial services and predatory lending, and everything we now know, both as academics and more increasingly the public, about what is actually systemic racism. And and so that's a huge list that you just said. Absolutely. And and you certainly didn't talk about all of those in each session. Uh, so, I pretty much did. Okay. Well, <laughs> as, give an as example. Our, as like, our listeners, as our listeners will, will will pick up on this show, we cover a lot of ground here. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a pretty it's a it's a heavy lift, but um, the point is to socialize the basic idea that structural racism is not a fantasy of some cabal of radical academics, but in fact is. Uh, the history of this nation and the degree to which we want to change the present of our nation is the degree to which we have to come to terms with the history of the nation. And, and so it, 
is what you're teaching, you know, this is it like a 45 minute lecture that you're giving at a corporation? Is it sort of a, a thumbnail of what you might teach over an entire semester? That's a great uh, question. Harvard? Yep, that's a short answer is absolutely. As, as one of my colleagues, a former student of mine said at Harvard a couple of years ago, she said, man, Khalil, if you could take what you taught me over 16 weeks into a two hour lecture, we could change the world. And, uh, and that's, that's, the, that's a tall ask and it's impossible in a way, but that really is the invitation for raising public awareness around these issues. But you were recently put on blast for these courses, mm-hmm. uh, for what you what you said in in, in front of some of these for the companies. presentations in, uh, in front of the for, companies. Yep, for the presentations, and you were actually talked about recently by Bill O'Reilly. Critical race theory seminars. Let me give you an example. So uh, a recent one featured a guy named Khalil Mohammed. He is the great grandson of Nation of Islam founder Elijah Mohammed. Pretty bad guy. Elijah Muhammad, pretty bad guy. Ask Malcolm X. Okay? So his grandson, and you shouldn't demonize a grandson because his grandfather was a bad guy, teaches at uh, the Kennedy School at Harvard, my alma mater. And he is demanding, this Khalil Muhammad, that American Express have reduced costs for black customers. So therefore, if you've got an American Express card and you were black, your interest rate would be lower than whites. That's racist. Wow. So you're getting attacked by the right wing. What is it you're actually doing in these courses that you've done at different businesses? What are you, what are you teaching there? What are you saying? Because clearly you're touching a nerve. Yeah, sure. So this isn't even about one company because the, this, this, you know, the guy who wrote an article that Bill O'Reilly looked at, a guy named Christopher Rufo, um, uh, has now sort of found social media evidence of a talk I gave at another company. So yeah. in, in terms of the actual content, it's the same because the history doesn't change. And, and what I essentially said is, if you, uh, X company want to be committed to racial equity, as you have said in your public statements, then you have to decide whether or not your business practices are exacerbating or alleviating racial disparities and structural racism in in American society. And that is the part of the conversation that takes the history and then uh, offers a way of thinking about what comes next. Let's just talk for a second about Elijah Muhammad. Like, he was wrong. (laughs) It's not your grandfather. It's your great-grandfather. But let's, you know... That, that's an interesting thing to bring up, you know, as a, as a way to, to identify you. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, uh, first of all, it's not a secret, so there's no reveal there. Um, my entire career uh, has been shaped by this biographical note. I'm very proud of uh, my legacy as the great-grandson of Elijah Muhammad, the Nation of Islam, uh, in its heyday, beginning in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and certainly helped to shape Malcolm X. Um, changed a lot of black people's lives, built a lot of black businesses, was a source of uh, pride, was a source of black history. And that's that's the absurdity of the way that someone like Bill O'Reilly is trying to weaponize uh, who he was, who Malcolm X was, and the issues that we face today. Yeah, yeah. We were talking about history and what's being taught. There's also this incredible denial of history. There's a, a, a denial of truth and fact that leads to then those norms that are also denying them. And there's a sense of, you know, 
there's something that seems almost incredibly infantile about it. Like if you close your eyes and say it's not there, then it's not there. Um, right. Now, it's, it's, it's way more sinister than that, as you said. Like it has these implications. Um, yeah. But, but, you know, this is that feeling that it's spreading everywhere is what makes people think suddenly like it's in all of our schools. And, yep. you know, we, we talked about the states that were considering laws banning critical race theory um, and not just in our schools. Now it's in our Fortune 500 companies, which you're purportedly guilty of, you know, helping to, to propagate and permeate. Yeah. So, you know, all, all these uh, media uh, hits uh, basically are trying to discredit people like me uh, for uh, essentially teaching about the history of race and racism. And because I'm now kind of in the crosshairs of conservative media, I get these crazy emails and racist phone calls from people threatening my life. You people have problems with white people, don't you? Big problems, don't you? You're a racist motherfucker is what you are. Okay, that's what you are. I'll fly halfway across the country. You fly halfway across the country. And you call me a racist to my face. What do you think, Khalil? You got the balls to do that? So obviously that guy hasn't listened to our show yet. Like now that you're talking to a white guy, right, exactly. it's all like, good. That just goes to show you, man, how the in bad a shape we're in, right? Like the idea that I don't know white people or talk to white people like black people are 12 percent of the population you can't Hmm. (laughs) you can't live past five as a black person and not have a conversation with white person but anyway yeah yeah here i am talking to you yeah so kind of the brilliance of these people is also to co-opt the very language that helps us to situate ourselves in history helps us to be able to say we've actually learned something from the past and that's what makes this so difficult. And, and that's, that is the situation we face today, in part a legacy of how, how poor a job of history we've actually done. I would really love to hear you talk more about why the 1619 Project and critical race theory, sort of with your own sense of teaching history, is so effective. Um, you know, what is the way that you want to teach history? What is the way that you want American history taught? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, well, I appreciate that because it, it is uh, the work that I've been doing for uh, a quarter century. And from my vantage point, um, history is always debatable as to how much evidence and weight, or I should say interpretive weight, you put on a point. So, And, and, and I'll say there that the, the, the sense of myth and reality are always in tension when we're talking about a country's history. It's tied in with right. our national identity. So there's always this tension, this conflict between what we mythologize and what was, was real, what really happened. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so the, I, to answer the question, I think, first, we ha- I have to say that in the quarter century, um, I've taught a lot of students who opted into my class and expressed to me at the undergraduate level, at the graduate level. I remember teaching a group of future teachers, like, oh, my God, I can't believe I never learned any of this. And again, that and, and, that's and what this, is this? Slow on. What what yeah, is the, this? The, the, the this is that the problem was much more deeply entrenched in the soil of the nation at every uh, moment in the past, from the colonial period to the national period to antebellum period. 
And that at each of these moments, when we look at the scale and scope of, uh, of slavery, for example, as, as a form of anti-Black racism, that, that it was in many ways the economic basis of America's wealth. And so even something like that uh, as, a, as a truth, right? It's not, it's not make-believe. Uh, slavery created wealth in the nation that gave America a head start in the world. Um, and it lasted so long, it lasted longer uh, here than it, our European cousins, so to speak. Uh, and as such, what most students were learning was like, slavery happened, it was really bad, and thank God it's over because Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. Like, that's the very glib take on it, but that is, in a sense, what students have been learning. So there's no detail to it, and there's no sense of the stakes of why we had a civil war in the first place that was fought actually over slavery, according to the Confederate Bills of Sedition, or I should say secession. (laughs) Um, So because in that way, and I'll just give a data point, uh, this organization, the Southern Poverty Law Center, looked at um, the quality of teaching about slavery in a 2018 report, and they found that when students were asked the question, how, how much did they understood that slavery was the central cause of the Civil War, take a guess on what percentage of the students said that was true. 31. 8%. <laughs> Is that nuts? 8%. Again, to analogize, imagine anywhere else in the world where there was a third of the population denying the impact of this massive system of oppression uh, towards people. It just would be unacceptable. It is not debatable as to the central role of slavery in the Civil War as a matter of fact, but it is debatable in the matter of our national memory and our political culture. And of course, the people who still wave Confederate flags and say this is about heritage and not hate. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, the, I appreciate this, Professor, because I feel like I'm getting a Harvard credit right here. Uh, um, <laughs> Forget you, I'm, your I'm, mama. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking about on the what what critics say like can that be overemphasized you know and this is sort of mm-hmm. this is the devil's advocate point like can that be stressed yep. too much where you're then occluding all other aspects of American history yeah so on the one hand um, we have gone too far forever right there's never been a golden age of getting this history in the way that is balanced yeah. and so let's just take that as a given that's the status quo. And so when I look at the critiques, it seems to me that the critiques um, are not trying to find a middle ground to say, okay, let's do this both end. Let's, let's actually get the history right that is the history of race and racism as a central category of the American story. Let's, let's just ban talk about race and racism because it's a divisive concept. I mean, right. so, so we can't even really get at some kind of balance. And if we were to get at some kind of balance, I think that we would all benefit from that. In other words, Black people also don't like, I mean, you've heard these stories before, Black people don't like uh, feeling like they're nothing but victims, yeah. that, that they've only experienced oppression. Um, and certainly as a teacher of African-American history, alongside slavery, I'm telling the story of Negro spirituals. I'm telling the story of the birth of jazz. I'm telling the, the story of the political genius of, of African-Americans in the Reconstruction period that helped to deliver public education to the South for the first time. But the only way that you can actually appreciate the agency and the resistance is to, to know with clarity what people overcame. It cannot be abstracted. 
As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So look, something like the 1619 Project uh, is not only important as a cultural milestone in having kind of America's newspaper of record lead an effort to say, 
we know that we haven't gotten our history right at, you know, at, at all levels of society. That um, if we were to compare the United States to other parts of the world that have had to reckon with what happened in those countries, whether it was apartheid in South Africa or the Holocaust in Germany, Americans would look at these places and think it was absurd that they had a distorted version of that past. And we would hold them accountable. And yet here, we know that teachers were not allowed to talk about slavery and Jim Crow as evidence of white supremacy for the entire period of the 20th century, because that's what the evidence shows. I mean, I talked about being childish, but, you know, like I'm rubber and you're glue kind of like back and forth where there's nothing you can do. And so then I'm going to throw it back on you. You're the historian. You were speaking to these groups. You know, you're dealing in hard facts. So you have history. What do you do? Well, I think it means that for me and what I advise people is you have to stay the course. And so just like when black civil rights workers were marching in towns and and lesions of white families came out like they did in Little Rock, Arkansas, outside of Central High School, we want to keep our schools white. There is a way in which this moment helps us to use that history as a way of saying, oh, okay, these folks don't really want to change America because if we got our history right, we would have a different America. Yeah, yeah. At the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, as you, as you enter, there's a quote by Maya Angelou. Mm-hmm. History, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, need not be lived again. The brainchild of the lawyer and activist Brian Stevenson, the Legacy Museum mm-hmm. is about as wrenchingly painful a bit of American history as one could ever imagine. It covers yeah, the yeah. painful history of lynchings in the country. Mm-hmm. And so saying lynchings did not happen or, or not wrestling with that terrible history doesn't make it not so. And the idea that, that we have to look back on even these most painful parts of our history uh, is, is part of who we are and to ensure that, to try not to ensure, but to, to, to maybe make possible that we don't, we don't do terrible things again. And, uh, and that uh, memorial uh, is just a powerful testament uh, to how we as a nation have yet again an opportunity to learn from our past in ways that will ensure that future generations will not repeat those mistakes. Yeah, yeah. I think about, you know, what truly makes America exceptional is Mm. that we are this multiracial and multi-ethnic democracy. And those same things are what make this country so fraught and problematic because that is our history also of oppression and of conquest and that you don't get the exceptional part of that w- without thinking about the difficulty and you right. don't you don't you don't reach a true multiracial democracy unless you wrestle with that past that's right because yeah. if we do change our history and we do create more awareness about the history of structural racism uh, in this country for all uh, Americans for all adults the country is likely to change and that's a good thing that would be a really good thing Well, we're, we're going to keep on moving forward together, Khalil. That's Maybe right. Mr. Leon is still around. Maybe so. And he's going to say, I'm not a racist. I love everybody. 
<laughs> oh, I love the thought of that. Maybe, maybe. Well, I love you. That, love you too. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. It's produced by Cher Vincent and edited by Karen Shakurji. Our engineer is Martin Gonzalez. Our associate editor is Keishelle Williams. And our showrunner is Sasha Mathias. Our executive producers are Leetal Molad and Mia Lobel. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan Avery R. Young from his amazing album Tubman. You will definitely want to check out more of his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. If you love this show, and we hope you do, and others from Pushkin Industries, consider becoming a Pushnik. Pushnik is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushnik exclusively on Apple Podcast subscriptions. By the way, Stephanie told me that this dress is like an AKA dress at one of their annual conventions. And so all the Moo Pie AKAs from Spellman, uh, whoever sees these little video clips is going to be like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> but you mean they all have the same dress? They all have the Blue? same dress. So even though it's not AKA colors? No, it is. Come on, man. Come on. I, I raised you better than that. <laughs> the tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.